Hello, everybody. Uh, this uh, two half squads here with a very special guest, Jeff Hallett. Oh, wait, no, he's always here. I'm um, not special. A more special guest, Rex Martin. Hello, I am Rex. Special. You are. <laughs> Welcome, Rex. Oh, my it's... daughter tells me. Yeah, it's nice to meet you. <laughs> nice to meet you guys. Well, in, in my background, Rex, I was the guy that was uh, got into really just advanced squad leader. I had the, my mom bought us the, a Gettysburg game uh, when I was in middle school and my brother and I, we, we never figured it out, which I it was real unfortunate. And then I got into like role-playing stuff in college and uh, a friend then got me into miniature war gaming. So I'm sitting at a table full of terrain. We had a game Saturday. Oh, and... my fingers are all downstairs. Oh, oh, you... <laughs> okay. So yeah, I... more. More I than played games. miniatures. Uh, when Craig Taylor was at the company, he had an enormous miniatures collection, and he was a miniature gamer. I had dabbled in it. I had a bunch of 15-millimeter Turks, uh, Napoleonic War era, that I had painted. I also had a bunch of British Seven Years War and a bunch of micro armor. So we just all kind of started gathering at his place about once a week to push lead around for a while. Now that Back when now it was lead. Yes, when it was led. <laughs> right. Um, and then I started with the squad leader advanced, not even the first game. And so then your name was all over that magazine I would get. And Rex Martin. And I'm like, oh my gosh, Greenwood Martin. These guys gotta be the greatest guys in the world. So you're one of my idols. I don't know so, about the greatest guys in the world, but <laughs> we did have our moments. You did. Um, so, so yeah, your background then getting started in gaming just briefly. Okay. Uh, back in the early 60s, 62, 63, uh, I stumbled across a game called Africa Core in a bookstore selling for $5, which is what most of them did at that time. I, even though, what would I have been, 12 years old, I was an avid history buff. And like most young boys, kind of focused on military history. And I would go through stages where I was really fascinated with various periods and battles and things. So at the time, I was really into the war in North Africa. So I picked up Africa Corps, followed that with a whole bunch of the early classic Avalon Hill games, D-Day, um, Stalingrad, all of those, Battle of the Bulge. Uh, Waterloo. I remember spending a whole year devouring Waterloo with a friend of mine. Uh, then life got in the way. I went to college, uh, kept up miniatures gaming uh, there in Helena in Montana, where I was at at the time. And then when I came out of that, I went back to playing Avalon Hill games, primarily, frankly, diplomacy because that was my great love and still is. Um, I was heavily involved in the diplomacy hobby and all of that. Uh, so went overseas, got my master's in Scotland, came back, started writing bits and pieces for the general. And after a few years, Greenwood decided he was tired of being the managing editor and suggested I might be a good choice. 
I didn't have a whole lot of prospects at the time living in Helena. So we packed everything up, moved to Baltimore. And I no worked for Avalon Hill for the next 13 years. And no offense to Helena, of course. <laughs> <laughs> no. Well, there's, there's not a lot of call for people with master's degrees in modern history in Helena, Montana. Although I did work for the Montana Historical Society for three years. Oh. I was involved in the uh, museum library and archives. Um, part of my salary came from the federal government because the state had a grant to microfilm old records and I ran the microfilm equipment and collated the newspapers to get them microfilmed and all of those kind of fun things. Started doing some writing about Western history about that time. Uh, so magazines that people have never heard of, like the Montana Magazine and the Pacific Corral of the Northwesterners and things, I'd had short articles published in those on Western history. Okay, and then, so then getting into Avalon Hill, your mm -hmm. first wargaming job was right away as the editor then of the- Managing editor, yep. Wow. Greenwood wanted to step down as managing editor. Nobody else wanted to do it because frankly, it was a thankless job. Uh, so I took over as managing editor, yes, straight into it, and managed to expand the magazine, add some new articles, started the ASL annual, uh, which was kind of a spin-off of the general, um, worked with some interesting people, did a lot of playtesting of all kinds of games. Uh, when Craig Taylor did um, Napoleon's Battles, we played a lot of that on the tabletops upstairs. Because the top floor in, on the corner of Reed Street in St. Paul, where our building was, was this enormous big room that we used for playtesting and parties, but mostly playtesting. So, so back, I back ended up. Days, what, what was what was the uh, circulation like on a, a magazine of, of the, the magazine? Um, it was at the time that I came in about twenty one thousand. I think we got it up before the company went under uh at its high point a few years before i left uh, about 32. so it was not you know it was gonna it wasn't gonna run competition with life or look on the newsstands but yeah. it was appreciable for what it was and for a relatively obscure hobby were there competing magazines well snt had one for a while um i think gdw might have made a fling at it, but not really. Uh, SBI, GDW, and those, you know, they toyed around with the idea, mainly because they were pissed off because we only carried stuff about Avalon Hill games. Um, there was the War Gamer, I remember, that was one that was more broad-based focused. Um, so there were some, but none of them that were all that large. I mean, part of what made us was we had a captive audience interested in Avalon Hill games. So right. you know, we just kind of stuck to Avalon Hill and published ads and pieces and reviews and everything, news of company and all that kind of stuff, ran a contest every issue. So it was, it was probably for its time the best you could find in terms of war game articles, war games in general. Yeah, because we ran pieces on history and analysis, and of course, lots of news about upcoming things. And we ran series replays of 
of really good games, you know, that had been played that people had written down and sent to us. And it was, and it was, and it was done primarily by the fans of Avalon Hill Games, the readers. Mm. Uh, there was some stuff that we wrote. There was a, all of us contributed to it. And whenever I had a hole that I thought needed filling, I put something in, but it was, it, it was the closest that you could come to a hobby newsletter per se. How big was the staff at that time? Me. I, I'm picturing, I'm picturing a, a huge office. You Me? Know, oh yeah. With me, let's see. I had a pretty good sized office, but most of my time was down the second floor at one end, the the uh, front, the edge of the building. We were on a corner. The edge of the building facing St. Paul was this big art room, and Dale Schaefer was in there. He was the artist there at uh, Reed and St. Paul at our offices. Um, so there was basically there was me. And there was Dale, who did most of the artwork in the general. Uh, Charlie did some pieces. Charlie Kibler did some pieces. Uh, other people did odds and ends of pieces. Um, but that was basically me. <laughs> and so when I started there, I was I had been trained in 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 publications, yeah, newspapers, but publications. And when I started. We literally typed it onto a computer, sent the sheets down to Reed Street or to um, the main offices, uh, and they ran off galleys. And they'd send back the galley proofs. I'd go through and proofread them with a blue line pen. Um, then I and Dale would lay the magazine out, and we did it on great big boards. We worked on eight by eight signatures, eight, eight pages to a side of a signature. Which is why when I jumped the size of the magazine, I had to go from 48 to 64. So 64. I had a lot of extra space to fill. Um, but the actual work, the hard part was laying it all out, pasting it up. Because we used hot wax, we cut the galley proofs with razor blades and paper cutters, and they all would be busily pasting down amber lith and, and making the illustrations and things colorful. Uh, and if you look at any publication, you'll note that there's black and white signatures, which are really cheap and easy to run. And then there's the color signatures, which are more complicated. Uh, even though we ran on web presses at, at Monarch, that was the publishing company that owned us, um, black and white was a lot faster and a lot cheaper to do. Mm. So about half of each issue or so, we laid out the signatures so that they were black and white on about half of the boards. Um, and then we'd spend a week to a week and a half pasting the thing up and off it would go to the publish, to the printing. They'd do the, go to the camera room, they'd make the plates and the presses would roll and the magazine would go out the door. And we'd all heave a sigh and I'd go back to work two days later on the next issue. So contributors were sending in articles, so you didn't mm -hmm. necessarily need to meet with any of them. Nope, nope. Uh, about half of what came in over the transom went in the trash uh, with a really nice rejection letter. About a quarter of it was not complete, needed some work. And then about 25% of it was in decent shape. 
if I didn't have the time, I'd just rewrite the damn things that needed some, some help. Uh, let them know I'm going to rewrite your piece. You're still going to get paid for whatever gets published, but I'm going to rewrite it some. There were those authors, like in any magazine, there are those authors that you can count on that are really good. They can actually write a coherent sentence. There are those that are kind of questionable. And then there's those that you just don't want to bother with. Yeah. So, I, and you have to be ruthless as a, as a magazine editor. And that, that includes even fan-based magazines like The General. Yeah, that now that's obviously because I'm I'm the guy who's buying this general magazine, and I'm only getting it starting when I got into ASL advanced, uh -huh. you know, and I'm looking. I'm really only buying it for the two scenarios and any article I can get, like when Swan was it Swan writing the articles mm -hmm. on the on the army. Steve Swan, Mark Nixon, uh, Craig Posey, uh, uh, that whole crew of. of ASL authors that we kind of encouraged or I kind of encouraged to, you know, put in as much as you can, guys, I'll find room for it. Yeah, well, that's in that. And I couldn't tell you how much I just loved it and have reread some of it, of course, um, because you're trying to learn the game, how complicated mm -hmm. it can be. Can't remember everything from reading the article once. So some of those strategy articles were especially helpful. But what the magazine also, and so of course, I don't want to, be reading something that's confusing or not right. well written. So thank you for make, getting a good product out the door for mm -hmm. me. Um, and then, uh, yeah, so now you must have known like the squad leader thing, was that a because you chose to go with an annual? Yeah, we were and, getting so much material in and a lot of it really good that I didn't want to fill up the pages of the general just with ASL stuff and a handful of other dates. So we made the, con I, I pitched the idea to Greenwood and Tom Shaw and, and the powers that be that, you know, we could actually put out a special issue once a year devoted just to ASL. And everybody thought that was a good idea, but they didn't want to do it as a special issue of the general. They wanted to do it as, some, as a whole separate publication and uh -huh. make more money at it. Because if I remember right, the damn thing cost like 10 bucks or something, which was a lot. Um, although after all the money ASL players had plumped down, it I guess really wasn't. <laughs> so we, I convinced them to just turn us loose. It was more, week, more work for I and Dale and Charlie and Mac and everybody else concerned. But it actually worked pretty well. Um, so for six issues... It was a lot of fun. Uh, I think the first one was 89. And the last one that I did, that I had a hand in, would have been, well, let's see, I left in 94. So probably 92 or 93 was the last one. And then did Fortenberry take over right away on that? I don't know, to tell you the truth. Yeah. I was busy with getting my doctorate and wasn't paying a whole hell of a lot of attention to what was going on at that lockdown. Well, I, of course, just loved the, I still got all my annuals and then mm -hmm. journals later with uh, MMP and so on. And um, yeah, just loved it. I get the, all the scenarios put in there and the analysis and the play, what it was called the play by play it was when two guys would write down every single move. Yep. I've showed those to Jeff. Jeff was not, not into gaming in those years. 
But yeah, when he look, he see, you know, he sees all the breakdown, all the little moves. It's like who would ever take time to do that? I kind of did, you know. Often I just looked at the illustrations mm. of the positions of the troops and not um, follow actual move by move. But but reading, just reading along those lines, and it was just fun. And then with this show, I started to do a um, ASL extras, which are on our website, which are the same thing that you guys started is two players playing mm-hmm. and i would verbally we didn't have a camera up over like the, the guys on youtube today um but i would verbally describe okay he's moving to this hex that hex he's stopping him he's firing neg to modifier and did the, a play through the same kind of uh, inspired by the work of those guys who would do those banizic and nixon and yeah all those guys. Posey and all of them. Marcus, Charles Marcus mm. did some stuff in the replays. Um, the, of course, the replays in the annual and, were an offshoot of the ones in the general because the general had been doing series replays for a long, long time. I mean, they have series replays in some of the early issues from Waterloo and Bismarck and you know, those games. So they've been around for quite a while. And if through those years that I was there running the magazine, we tried to put in a replay probably four out of the six issues every year because uh, we used them a lot to promote the new games. So, for instance, if you go pull the issue that was devoted to, um, uh, I don't know, let me think of one that we actually did, Submarine, I think we did a replay of. We did a replay of um, Kremlin which was a lot of fun because a lot of it was either us sitting around there at the office playing it and recording the stuff or somebody who we trusted volunteering to do one and send it in on time or occasionally like with the uh, one we did on enemy in sight, I did with my kids and it was just a matter of recording the damn thing and making sure that it made sense so that people could follow it, coming up with a few illustrations, minimum necessary, and putting it in the magazine. And they usually ate up several pages, which was always good. Uh-huh, yeah. <laughs> and we generally didn't have to pay anybody for them, so. Oh, that's we did we did actually pay our authors. Yes, I do remember like seeing that in the, uh, the fine print at the front of the mm-hmm. magazine, you know. Um, that's how closely I read it. <laughs> now, it also you did work. It closer than I did then. And I'm not a uh, actual big Avalon Hill guy. The miniatures was larger in D and D, but as I would read the general, of course, you know, I I had gone out and bought um, Glad- Gladiator and the Circus Maximus, and yep. I just played those 150 times each, you know, mm-hmm. with various friends, just over and over and over. Do you go to and- the miniatures conventions? Uh, I ha- yeah I have we have little H- wars HMGS in the in on the east coast they used to have a guy that had a whole a whole surface maximus set built in fifteen millimeter with all the chariots and everything and he would run these amazing chariot races a couple of times during the convention we there yeah. is a guy who drops in out here at the little wars here mm-hmm. and I also have I made it into fifteen millimeters. <laughs> 
and ran most all of those games also in miniature with just my group because I, I didn't, yeah. wasn't going to conventions and things. I was just doing games with friends. And I had also then done the Gladiators. I have a Coliseum and you just set it mm -hmm. right over the board it came with and the miniatures are the 25s that fit real well on those hexes. Yeah. I modified the movement system a bit. Um, but but yeah, that and then when I would read the general and I read like Siege of Jerusalem and mm -hmm. it did inspire me to to grab a couple more games to add to my shelf. So then it served its purpose. Yeah. As far as the company was concerned. Yeah. So then the company, um, the history of the company, it it was and I read a little bit of your we should talk about your thesis paper <laughs> a lot. I I found it online. Uh -huh. But it's only it's only the first twenty five pages, I think. Oh well, the whole thing is over seven hundred. So. Oh my gosh! I thought because I looked at your index, mm -hmm. uh, like, well, tons of stuff. But so, with Avalon Hill, you obviously talk about the development of this hobby, uh, this subculture that we are in uh, still, <laughs> some of us, and then its demise. So what? kinds of things did you see with Avon Hill? You got out before it actually went under? I did. Uh, by 92 or 93, most of us could read the writing on the wall. Uh, a number of factors contributed to it, but Avalon Hill was going under and it was going under hard. So a number of us started looking for alternates. I had always been my intention at some point in my life to go get my doctorate. Um, and with my interest moving from military history to cultural history, it seemed like a perfect time to go off. It took me a while to find a university that would let me do what I wanted to as far as my dissertation, because I had in mind from the very beginning, I wanted to do a cultural history of commercial war games, uh, board war games. So I cast around, I went to places like Temple and interviewed the University of Maryland and so forth. Penn State at that time in the College of Communications had an interdisciplinary PhD program, which was perfect for them. And I convinced them that, yes, by God, published games are a mass medium. And that was a, a bit of a battle. And I'm sure some of them never did quite accept it. But I went, I was accepted, went to Penn State. Um, I had financial aid. I was a uh, teaching assistant. I did various things for the department, or for the college, actually, the College of Communications. And after seven years, I got spit out in 2001 with my doctorate. Uh, in fact, I, the award ceremony was the same week I turned 50. So I managed to make my goal. So it's, that's a long time ago. And I I have been contacted by various people who want to publish the damn thing. And I never set out for it to be published. But if you want to get a copy of it, you can probably write the university library. They have them on microfilm, all of them. And but I'll tell you right now, there's a it is the first three chapters are all on the theory, on um, leisure theory, because I took courses over in leisure studies, graduate courses. Uh, Another one on history and approaches to history. And I spun out this idea that there was a movement in the late 50s through about the 70s where what I called experiential history took a boost. 
So you see a boost in not just word wargaming appealing to a young audience, but in reenacting in historical sites where you could go and visit like Cowtown and Wichita or uh, Valley Forge or those kind of places. You had a uptick in TV shows about history uh, spurred by PBS. So there's all these things that are coming together that in what I termed experiential history. So there's a whole chapter on that. Uh, there's a whole chapter on cultural theory and subculture, and that's the one that most people will probably doze off during. Um, and then I got into the history of the phenomena of commercial board wargaming. And I each chapter is broken into three sections detailing a specific time period, usually marked by some kind of a highlight. And in between those sections are sections on things like why I thought that it appealed to youngsters of a certain age. Uh, the baby boomer generation is the one who are war gamers, board war gamers. Um, the next generation was into, the generation before that had been into miniatures. The generation after moved to the computer and those kind of things. So there was that period of time when board war gaming boomed. Uh, I think at its peak, they, they estimated there was about 500,000 serious war gamers in the United States. Mm. Um, obviously, that number has trickled down as we get older and people die off and people find other things to do with their time. Um, but if you go to the Avalon Hill, well, the World Board Gaming Championship, yeah, right. Mm -hmm. you'll see there are a lot of gray beards there uh not so many younger people and very very few teenagers in the, and they're usually playing the fantasy games and things so there was kind of this this golden moment when wargaming commercial wargaming could be viable and then for various reasons it began to decline uh i devoted a section on the mathematics involved in it the theoretical background of how you can find a game I have another whole section on the rhetoric. I took a couple of courses in rhetoric over in my PhD days that I found just fascinating when you started applying it to something uh, that wasn't spoken or written per se to a game. Um, the fact that the whole idea of board games, board war games present is that war is understandable, that it can be confined, it's the edges of the board, uh, that there are rules to it and all of those kind of things that aren't really reality. So I devoted each chapter to looking at the industry and what was going on and the hobby. I mean, the rise of things like fanzines and so forth. Uh, all the various companies that came up, at least the major ones. So SBI is mentioned a lot, GDW, Battleline, um, those kind of things. Um, those companies, Yakinto, I remember devoting several pages to Yakinto. Of course, I had Craig Taylor there, so I could tap his memories. And a lot of the research was done by talking to people uh, in the industry and by gathering up all kinds of papers. I have boxes full of stuff about Avalon Hill, uh, old memos, papers, letters, all kinds of stuff. Uh, outlines on, on game ideas, sales figures, all of that crap. 
So that's what I used for my research. And one of the reasons it is such a pig, one of the reasons it's 700 pages, not counting the bibliography and the ludography, is that there was a lot of stuff to say that nobody would said before. So, and Sounds my committee great. liked it, so I got congratulated. Congratulations, mm -hmm. Dr. Martin. You need to tell that to my wife. She's the one who had to suffer through it all. Well, I, I saw you did give her uh, thanks in your, you know, thank you page. Yes. <laughs> yes, for putting up with it. For seven years is a long ago. commitment. And of course, during that time, I also got heavily involved. Well, not heavily, but I got involved in the video game industry. So I can thank my doctorate for that, too. So yeah, you were then working with another company doing video game stuff? The first summer that I, after my first year of classes in school, uh, I had nothing to do in the summer. And my wife was going, oh my God, we, we're broke. We've got no money. Mm -hmm. I happened to know Sid Meier. And so at Microprose, oh. Sid said, look, we're doing this game called Across the Rhine. It's about armored warfare and Western Europe. Uh, after D-Day, we need somebody to evaluate the history. And I said, okay. He said, and we'll pay you. That's it. I'm in yours. And every summer after that, I was at Microprose playtesting or writing or doing something. Um, eventually, when I got done with my doctorate, I went to work full-time for Microprose. A couple of years after I did that, they got sold and then sold again and then sold again. And Sid took all of those millions and went and started up Firaxis. So I just kind of naturally moved over to working for Firaxis. But it was about that time that I started teaching. I got a teaching position. So for six years, I taught at Bowie State University. I taught journalism. And then when I left Bowie, uh, Sid found out about it and immediately offered me a job again. So I went back to work for Firaxis for another five years. And then I retired and now I teach online. Oh, and you don't teach wargaming classes online? Actually, I teach a course about the industry and issues of the video game. Uh, COM 190 for Penn State's World Campus is a introductory course to video games. We touch on a number of the issues. We touch on the industry. We touch on things like serious gaming, uh, avatar rights. Uh, it's kind of a a loose rambling through an introduction to the industry and the issues that surround it. So we have a whole week we devote to the violence in games uh, wow. and the effects of it. Uh, another whole week is spent on issues of copyright and legal aspects. Um, another week is devoted to careers in the industry. And you'd be amazed at some of the job openings for things like child psychologists. You got a psychology degree specializing in children, go find a video game company. They might hire you if they're doing children's games. Um, really? Really. Huh. Uh, engineers of all sorts to check the uh, reality of things like flight simulators and stuff. Um, obviously writers, which is what I did. Uh, researchers, artists, it's amazing. Uh, you know, every kind, just about any kind of job career that you can think of, 
somewhere, somehow, there is an opening in the video game industry for them. And not just the business side. That's a whole other kettle of fish. Wow. That, that... Obviously, the video game industry is huge, is huge. And $170 billion in sales last year. But and Worldwide. when you in the early days, did you have any idea that it was going to turn into the juggernaut that it was? Because video games, of, oh yeah, of, yeah, coming out of board gaming, you talk you talk about thirty thousand or how, how many people did you say were playing? At its peak, they estimated about five hundred thousand people in the United yeah. States played board war games on some kind of a level. Okay, yeah, semi semi regularly, I guess is the term. And video games probably far. Oh, oh, oh much, much that very, oh, very, yes. very, very quickly. Oh, yes. yeah. Yeah. They, they estimate that roughly 3 billion people play a video game yeah. during a year. Well, uh, and even and as a lot of them are online games. So that number, you know, it doesn't even show the amount of hours they're putting into it. Right. Because they only count them once. Right. Oh. Well, and all that is going on, that, that huge shift is going on while you're working on your thesis, right? So there's this, you've got all that movement going on while you're- It kind of actually started before. One of the things that, that, that put board wargaming into a decline was the rise of some new sensibilities as far as games go. So you had the collectible card games, you had the role-playing games, actually reverse order role-playing, uh, all those fun D&D &D people up there, uh, sitting up there in Wisconsin at Lake Geneva. Uh, you then had the collectible card games, Wizards of the Coast, and all their imitators. And you had computer games starting up. And there were some decent computer games. Avalon Hill toyed with computer games, I think, three different times. They tried to start a computer game division hmm. while I was there. Um, but they weren't willing to put the money into it. And video games are expensive. Yeah. Uh, when I was at Firaxis, the last thing I worked on at Firaxis uh, was writing the Civilopedia for Civilization VI. I did a lot of the writing for the Civilization series. Um, it was a $200 million two-year production. So it was like a blockbuster movie, okay? And when you have those kind of numbers being involved, you're going to have a lot of money coming back in. You've got to. Uh, that's one of the reasons why the video game industry has always been so volatile. Companies pop up and they die very quickly. And you have a few big ones. And then you have everybody else. And the everybody else hopes to do one of three things. Either get a hit that will allow them to get bigger. To come up with a really clever idea that they publish low key and then they sell their company to a bigger one like EA or mm. 2K, which is who owns Firaxis, um, or the company goes under. Uh, there's some fascinating articles on the percentage chances uh, of getting a self-sustaining hit. Roughly, if I remember the last article I read, because I always reference my students to it, it was out a few years ago. Two games out of every 10, you're going to make money on. Three games out of every 10, you're going to break even. The other five, you're going to lose money on. So you want those two to be big hits 
to carry you through the others. And most studios can't do that more than a few years. So, so it's volatile. Yeah, that is crazy. And now mm -hmm. when, when you had written too, and then in your thesis about, I think I had read something about you thought people were getting into war gaming for specific reasons. I, did mm -hmm. I see the word fear in there? No. Um, one of my arguments is, is that the reason that board war gaming kind of got rolling in the 60s and through the 70s and 80s is because of the baby boomer generation. We are, I'm assuming you gentlemen are about my age, we are the children of the World War II era. Yeah. Uh, our parents were the ones who worked at home, went overseas, fought the war, did all of this. And they had a lot, a lot of stories, a lot, a lot of memories. One of the things that children tend to want to do is try to understand their parents. So for a lot of us, we got into wargaming. And one of the reasons that the biggest biggest era that was focused on by war gamers was World War II with the Civil War and the Napoleonic Wars of distant second, the was was we were trying to understand what our parents had experienced. And so, you know, I saw a game on uh, Battle of the Bulge and I said, oh yeah, my uncle was there. You know, maybe this will help me know a little bit more about him or about what he was doing or what was happening. Uh, to try to understand the stuff that I'm reading in books and things. Um, so uh, I think the reason that it was popular and rose dramatically through the 60s and 70s and into the 80s before it started its decline was the fact that we were trying to understand our parents, especially our fathers and uncles, and, you know, so forth. So that was one of my arguments. It wasn't necessarily a matter of fear, although when the games about nuclear war started coming out in the Third World War, SBI leaned heavily on that. There was this, oh, this is what it's going to be like. Maybe I can help. Maybe I can understand it or, you know, kind of see what's going to happen by playing Fall to Gap and playing, you know, all of these Warsaw Pact games and so forth. So, yeah, or various, even, like, like in anything complicated, there's various currents going on. And like role playing was a Twilight 2000, I think, is something. Mm -hmm. In college, some of us had gotten into a little. Um, so then with uh, the, there was an article Jeff and I were talking about at breakfast the other day. We were not uh, about like the audience. So why would you do thoughts on why the audience is predominantly, uh, is it white men? Is there, Again, you have thoughts? That, I thought that goes, some social. That goes back to the fact that most of the World War gamers were white male and because, and I think in part got into the hobby to understand their parents. And frankly, the role of non-whites in the military, especially the American military, there weren't many combat units. There weren't many, you know, they were doing the supply work. They were doing the dirty work. Yeah, you've got things like the red tails and, and the rare, you know, uh, African-American unit or uh, the wind talkers, the, you know, occasional Indian Native American group. Uh, but really not that many of them were that interested in learning 
about World War II and that aspect. There were other factors in their history that they wanted to understand. Um, so that's one of the reasons why there aren't yeah. that many games about the Indian Wars. Yeah, and I was wondering too, like socioeconomic factors, just for like even having the money to be able to afford to get into a hobby anyway. Oh yeah, in, in the early 60s, five bucks was a big deal. I saved for three months to buy Africa Core. Not to mention 85 when my friend talked me into going out and getting Beyond Valor and the rule book. <laughs> yeah. That was over a hundred bucks. Yeah, I'm gonna sell mine one of these days. I got just, so many. I've got so many shrink wrapped games that I've got to get rid of. To... Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's it's probably time to start. I I did a little eBay sale uh, a couple of weeks mm -hmm. ago. I just cleaned out my mom's house. She passed away, and mm -hmm. decided I don't want to make my kids go through all my stuff. I try getting Jeff to come over and go through all my stuff when I pass, but I don't uh, think he he wants to do that. Well, I. I've been promising my wife for years I'd start cleaning out some of them. Like I said, I've got a lot of games that are still shrink-wrapped because I have no reason to open them. Well, I was just going to say, I'm guessing that you developed, even amidst all these different games, you developed a special uh, interest in Advanced Squad Leader. I did. Um, I was there when they started, when, when Greenwood and them decided, we're going to redo this. Um, so there was basically I and Charlie Kibler and Don Greenwood saying, well, you know, we could we could take a run at this. Uh, we'd been promising to add more modules to the original squad leader, which I had played. In fact, my first efforts at getting published in the general, uh, I had two degrees in Finnish history because uh, I had gone to the University of St. Andrews in Scotland to take my master's. Specifically because one of the leading experts in Finnish history during World War II was teaching there. So I went there. And I started writing up rules and scenarios and things for to incorporate the Finns into the original squad leader. Sent it all off to Greenwood. That was one of the reasons I think they drugged me out to Baltimore from the wilds of Helena. And uh, so there were the three of us. And then later when it started turning into a bigger and bigger and bigger project. Because like always, you always think, okay, we'll just do these rules and redo these, and then we'll start adding new modules to squad leader. When they decided, mostly Greenwood, that it was going to get bigger is when they brought McNamara in because he was an expert in military vehicles and ordnance. And they wanted to make it as comprehensive as possible with all the other nationalities so that anybody could sit down and play any nationality against anybody playing another nationality. And we just kind of started rolling along with it. Um, Charlie doing, Charlie and I doing a lot of the layout of the rule book and stuff. Uh, I ended up kind of spearheading a couple of the little modules and things. Uh, oh, here, I'll give you guys a test. Well, paratroop, paratrooper. You recognize that? Uh, we sure have. We've done that on our box art review segments. <laughs> this is the original one. This is, what, this is what Parrish sent in. Yes. Oh, do you want to send that to us as thanks that's for his, that's interview? his little little thing? He always did the, the GP down here in the yes, corner. Yes, he did. Of yes, he did. So 
we ended up with a bunch of those at the office when it was, you know, when we were all departing and everything. And we knew so, just like a lot of the games in the game library and stuff, it was all going to get heaved into the trash. So, so I picked up that one because Hedgerow so, Hell is one of the things that I do. Oh. Yep, there it is. But so see, that's, it looks better, with, looks better without all that ugly lettering. On yeah, show that again. Show that again. Yeah. Ugh. I don't know if I can get the whole thing in. Yes, there it is. Oh, that is, it is beautiful. Oh, this is worth the price. On, you know, he just did it on this cardboard. Yeah, what is that? So, it's just tag, it's cardboard. And then. Yeah, it's just, just it's, cardboard. Yeah, it's uh, painted, that's though. Why you get, that's why you get things like the, the ink bleeding over on the edges. Because oh, it's yeah. cardboard he, he and the ink would that out. Right. So, wow. Huh? Wow. So, do you, how much do you want for that? How much do I want for that? That I would have to think about. Think uh, about it, Rex. I, I, I'll, I'll get back to you on that one. Send me an email at some point. And make it okay, because I am getting a little uh, inheritance from my mom okay. passing away. So, um, but you know, George Parrish, we just kind of send him an idea. I'd say I'm doing Hydro Hell. Here's some oh, yeah, of the scenarios yeah. that we've got. I've got blocked out so far. We need a we need a, a piece of artwork for the cover. And he'd whip one off in a month or so. So he did almost all the artwork for the advanced squad leader modules um, from Yanks and Beyond Valor and all yep. the way up through the Japanese and the French. And there is a definite change in the art, the cover art at a certain point. And that's when Parrish kind of quit doing it for Avalon Hill because we weren't in existence anymore. Yeah. So, yeah, but yeah, he Parrish was amazing. He was so you, one of those multi-talented people that just kind of seemed to adhere to advanced squad leader. You know, so Charlie was a brilliant with the map boards. He did cover art. Uh, Greenwood would come up with rules. Greenwood and McNamara would come up with rules. Charlie did all the counters in in the thing. I think I think Dale Schaefer may have done some of the counter sheets, but mostly it was Charlie's work. Charlie did the maps and the counters. And we all did rules and we all did scenarios. And, you know, it's just kind of this amazing collection for a few years of people really interested in tactical level recreation of World War II. So. So, so with Paris, you would just tell him the, like you would say, we're going to do the Americans and he would come up yeah. with a painting for you. Yeah. yeah. And, you know, if, if, if it was like Red Barricades or, um, Hedro Hell or something, we'd yeah, say this is fire. what it's about. So uh, I remember when they were going to do Hollow Legions, they sent him and said, okay, we're going to do a module of Italians, and they should probably have something to do with the desert because that's the boards that are going to be in there in most of the scenarios. Yeah. And so and that's all the directions Parrish would get, and he'd just go from there. Yeah, well, that's uh, – that, I'm so – so glad to uh, uh, hear about some of those extra details there with how everyone working together and so on. It's really great. Um, well, that was one of the things. I mean, we'd do something and we'd pass it around and say, what do you think of this? What do you think of that? Here's a scenario that Charlie did, you know, pass it around. Here's one that I did. Here's one that McNamara did. Pass it around. And, and we could all be our, we could be the worst critics in the world. We would tear each other up all the time. And of course, then it go out to people like Nixon's playtest group, and they just tear it apart, you know. So, which was good, you know. It's it's, I think part of what made it 
the quality that it was. Quality, right? Exactly right. And then the names were not on the scenarios in those days. No, so no, that I was think a conscious decision. I think we, Jeff Jeff has a list of some of the scenarios you designed. I was surprised to see them. If you go to the scenario archive, mm -hmm. um, yeah, do you want to no, name? We made the conscious decision at the very beginning that we weren't going to put names on the scenarios. If people wanted to say, this is mine, you know, and so forth. And in some cases, like in the general, you could tell because they went with an article. Um, so you could kind of knew who did the scenarios by and large. But again, part of that was because scenarios got changed so much, so dramatically during playtesting. Um, I mean, wholesale changes at times. It's not just let's delete a squad, let's add a, you know a, a half track, uh, let's change this board to this other board. We we level some of them and rebuild them, um, and it was just I think it was a fact that there were so many cooks involved that it actually made the meal better because yeah, we so all we, had our strengths and we all had our weaknesses. Yeah, and um, so and do you think that areas of knowledge? You don't think that affected too much the historical set, like you did the Kokoda Trail, that one. Mm -hmm. Did you research particular things to, to, to write that then? Or? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I mean, when I was doing the scenarios on the fins, I was pulling sources that, most, frankly, most people wouldn't know about because um, I had two degrees in Finnish history. Uh, when I did Things like Japanese scenarios, I knew nothing about the war in the Pacific, but I knew how to do research. I mean, again, I knew how to go dig out historical sources, how to find things, how to track from one thing to another. Um, so, yeah, we, I at least would do research on it. I know Mark Nixon from talking to him would do research on things. Uh, he'd say, let's do a um, scenario on, I don't know, one of the scenarios that he would have done in the general and he'd go find the sources and everything we used to talk about sources all the time and occasionally you get stuck not knowing a source and you just send it off now in some cases the information was kind of thin on other cases there was a lot of it um the tavernitis bridge scenario i remember oh, wading yeah. through all kinds of crap on uh you know the battle and, and the fight around there and there were a lot of accounts of it um some of them firsthand so you waded through all that stuff at least i did and then kind of said okay you know you can't recreate it exactly but you can come close and so that's what we did i in some cases i was lucky enough to come up with a to and e and in other cases you just kind of guessed from the accounts or you guessed from this two paragraph footnote in some book that talked about this particular action when I was doing the scenarios for partisans and um, for uh, uh, hollow legions, I think I did a lot of that going to footnotes and finding little tidbits in there and saying, this might make an interesting scenario. And of course, that's the first thing. We were all voracious readers and still are today. And you trip over something in a book that you were reading about, I was a fan at one time of the uh, books by Salisbury. So his book on the siege of, of Leningrad has a lot of detail, a lot of detail about the tactics and tactical actions and things. 
And I'd trip over something in there and say, that sounds interesting. I think I'll try to see if I can come up with a scenario for it. Didn't always work out, but the ones that didn't make it were pretty good. And there were a lot of scenario ideas that, that we rejected that we tossed out at various times, various of us. You know, some scenarios you just couldn't recreate in the ASL. Uh, beach landings were notoriously impossible. When we did the, uh, the Pacific uh, uh, Galutu scenario, with the with the map things, yeah, it was not the most balanced thing in the world, but it was damned accurate actually. So, then that was always the balance. It was, do we make it playable or do we make it historically okay. accurate? And that was well, always the dichotomy between Avalon Hill and SBI, for instance. And we had the it, same thing with every scenario. Yeah, so you were there for the Gavutu Tambogo, and it came out. Oh in, yeah, uh, that was the last. I think that was last annual I did. Oh, okay. Yeah, it had uh, uh, Jeff seen the map before. I played all. I think it had three scenarios and mm -hmm. a historical piece to it. But it was uh, yeah. two little islands, Jeff. Almost just like little islands. Little that, islands. Yeah, and then they connected with a causeway. Kind of like yeah. That. yeah. <laughs> and when we started working on that, because I had come up with it, when we started working on it, we were all going, "This is never going to work. How are we going to do this?" It and was Mac very going, you know. The Japanese, you got to adjust, and and this is where a lot of the the fudging came in. You're going to have to adjust the victory conditions to give them some kind of a chance, because if we do it like it is, they have no chance. You know. Yeah. Uh, but that again, that was one of the ways we used to balance things was the victory conditions. Yeah. Like shorten the time down for the Americans. Shorten the or time whatever. down. Uh, add, change the victory conditions, the points that you got. Change this changed what you had to do, how many units you had to get off the far side of the board, various things that we did. Yeah, because I, I thought those were really cool. Just it was such a unique concept. So you read about it and then said, I'm gonna try this crazy thing. Yeah, found, a, found a book about the marine landings. Uh, and during the big invasion, there's these two little islands that they also had to take out over here in the bay. And from that, it just kind of grew. I mean, they had, the book had really precise maps and everything in it and good T-O-N-E order of battle. Uh, so we had a lot of stuff to work with to make that. Uh, it was kind of, they had done the historical red barricades and they were doing historical, wanted to do historical ones. And one of the things that had been talked about as one of the historical modules would have been a Japanese island campaign. Um, maybe something large like uh, the fight for Guadalcanal's airfield. Um, so, but we, we never got around to it, obviously. But when the Japanese came out, everybody kept writing in and saying, you gotta do an island campaign. You gotta do a, a, a island battle. You gotta have some." Well, finding something small enough that would fit in the scale that we had uh, was going to be tough. So when we tripped over that, or I tripped over it and went to the other and said, hey, look at this, we decided that this was our one shot at being able to do that. I loved it. Although I think, <laughs> yeah, the Americans probably did win. <laughs> mm -hmm. Well, our time is running short a bit here. Um, Jeff, any questions you have for Rex? No. I, I can't think of anything, but it's been absolutely enthralling. 
uh, I got to say, it's uh, it's amazing hearing uh, the depth of, I, I'm just amazed at all you've done, all the yeah. stuff you've done. <laughs> I'm just like, what? I got to go back and redo my life now. I That's gotta... why it takes me a while to get out of bed in the mornings these yeah. days. <laughs> I mean, once you hit a certain level, you know, it's just, just getting up is a, is a good one. Yeah. But I still, I still play diplomacy. Um, I don't play as much as I used to. I still play miniatures at the conventions. Uh, I love to go right over there and fall in and cold wars and, you know, the HMGS scenario or, Conventions are over in Lancaster, so it's not a very far drive for me. Um, I, I haven't been to one of the World Board Gaming Championship conventions for several years, but understandably with all that went on with COVID and everything. Right. So it's I still occasionally go out and play for the fun of it. And I play computer games. I'm forever trying just to keep up for my class, just trying the newest and latest oh, things. Yeah. Uh, All right. Well, we'll sign off then. So can't thank you enough. Yeah, really. Well, thank you, gentlemen. It's been thank fun. Thank you very, very much. Yeah. All right. Again, take care, Thanks Rex. Thank you lot, so guys. much. Bye. Bye. Pleasure. Bye. Well, that was fantastic. Absolutely thrilling to talk to him. So interesting. Could have gone on for hours and hours and hours. Yeah, really could. Could have talked about a lot of individual scenarios and everything yeah. else that's yeah. going on there. And yeah, wonderful. I'm so glad we could talk to him. So, well, I guess that wraps up an episode. Yep. And Dave, our anniversary, probably when this goes out, it'll be the, the 13th anniversary of the two half squads. So I'll reach through the and shake your hand. Oh, up. yes. Thank you, Jeff. Thank you very much. Yep. There, I got your hand there. Yeah. And if anybody would like to send us a cake, please do. Mm -hmm. Just In the meantime, two half squats. Uh, remember yes. to roll low and rally well. But, but not, not when you're playing us. Bye bye, everybody. Bye, everybody.